Welcome to the London Welsh Rugby Club podcast. This is our fifth special episode. I know in the last pod I mentioned I was having a short break, but this opportunity arose to interview Chris Jones, the BBC main rugby correspondent and lead commentator. As it's the end of the domestic season, we cover a breadth of topics from what to do with the championship, a review of the home nations from their summer tours as we look forward to the Rugby World Cup in France. Plus, Chris shares his own rugby playing and refereeing journey and how he got the job at the BBC. I'm very grateful for Chris to give up his time. I think you'll find this rather fascinating. Enjoy. Welcome to the pod, BBC Rugby Union correspondent and former KCS player, Chris Jones. How are you, Chris? Yeah, I'm very well, Gareth. How's it going? Good to be on. Yeah, good to see you again. Look, um, glad the season's finally over, Chris. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's been a long one for, for us in the media, so goodness knows what it's been like for the players and coaches. Um, and I suppose the supporters might be keen for a, a little bit of downtime, although the rugby championship's rolling around before you know it. So um, it was funny, we recorded our last uh, Rugby Union Weekly podcast the other day as a lot of premiership clubs were returning to pre-season. I don't know what it's like for Welsh, but I'm sure that you'll have the guys in reasonably soon for a bit of fitness. So it, it doesn't it doesn't really stop, but... Um, I think those internationals were a nice way to to kind of round it off for now um, and, and just yeah, give, give everyone a bit of time to breathe. So London Welsh's season finished at the end of April. So not like the Premiership players who went into, into June, some of them. So they've been in pre-season already for right. three to four yeah. weeks. So, uh, yeah, so they're, they're, our season starts on September 3rd, so the f- a week before the Prem season starts. Mm, yeah. Um, but look, I, I, I should declare to, to our listeners how we met. So, because I'm an avid listener to your Rugby Union Weekly podcast, as are many other millions. And I think at some point during some of your, one of your episodes, I heard that you're a former player of KCS. And obviously, London Welsh were playing them last season in London South 1. And so being the cheeky chappy I am, I invited you to be a guest at our pre-match lunch. And so from your perspective, you know, you had a day off that day. How do you enjoy your day at London Welsh being sort of part of community rugby with a lot of your, your former teammates and friends? Yeah, it was absolutely brilliant. And it, it's a kind of um, a bit of a regret. I wouldn't say it's a regret. It's just that the reality, but one of the, um, I suppose, few, very few drawbacks of doing what I do, which is, you know, such a privilege and so much fun is that I don't get as much chance to stay involved at KCS Old Boys as I as I would have liked. I probably finished playing maybe a few years earlier than um, than I may have liked, given I was working a lot of Saturdays from kind of my mid mid late twenties onwards. Um, I try and get down a couple of times a season to KCS, but it doesn't always happen. So uh, the fact that I could go to a great place like London Welsh and see the boys play and um, catch up with you guys and and get involved in the pre match lunch. I had a few mates who came down to watch as well, and then there were mates I went to school with who were down watching the old boys and one of my best mates was down there with with his daughter who's my goddaughter so it was just a lovely afternoon and kind of um summed up so much that, that, that is great about community rugby but also competitive hard fought rugby as well I thought it was a really good game you guys were obviously the stronger team but KCS played I think with a lot of heart and a lot of skill as well and showed that they can they can mix it with with the best teams in the league so yeah really enjoyable day and I'm yeah I'm looking forward to being invited back and there was, there was a pre going to the match what was your perception of where London Welsh were because after our expulsion from the championship a lot of people uh, in the sort of public in in the media will know we're sort of not around in the championship anymore so what was your expectations prior to coming to the game well I knew you guys were on a 
great run. And I obviously, you know, knew that you had sort of amalgamated the, the two arms of the club and were on the sort of comeback trail, which is which is awesome, really. And and I um I live just around the corner from uh, AFC Wimbledon, which is like the ultimate kind of um, riches to rags to semi-riches football story in terms of the, the, the way they set up their own club and are now sadly got relegated from League One, but are knocking around in some of the top top divisions in in English football. So um, yeah, I, I think I, I you know couldn't couldn't miss the fact that you guys were um, on the you know constant rise through the leagues, but I, I just think the way the club felt really uh, homely, really real sort of contrast of all real combinations sort of of the the professionalism that you've you've experienced coupled with the great history the club has always had and I think that's the special thing about going down to London Welsh is that you can't um, escape the history and why would you it's one of the great things about London Welsh as a club so yeah I just was I was very impressed with uh, on the field and and off the field and, and I suppose a question I'm keen to ask you guys and I chatted to a few of your colleagues and friends about this Gareth when I came down is what's the what's the plan for Welsh now given what happened before given the difficulties given the way you had to to go from the bottom up again what what would you say is the end goal or or is that is there not really an end goal hey I thought I was asking the questions Chris yeah. look, no, 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 <laughs> I can't I think... it's a force, force of habit yeah force <laughs> think, of habit look, I'm, I'm a director of the club right so we, we've we had a, a five-year plan now to get four promotions in five years we did four in four I think we, you know we finished second last year and three went up when we go to like National Three, or I think it's called London Southeast Counties One or something, they've rebranded the Liga. So we play teams up in like Banbury, Royal Wooden Bassett, Bournemouth. It's going to be Wimbledon, really competitive league. One team goes up. Right. And this is, we're entering a, uh, an, um, a league now where players are being paid. We've seen some of the signings other clubs are doing. So I think this year's have a good crack, see where we're at, and we're not going to be paying our players. We're going to be... be um, delivering an amazing experience for our players when it comes to post-match. We've got a careers hub, so we help them excel off the pitch. So that, that's where I think we, we, we can make a difference with our team. And we're confident of being top three. But mm-hmm. that's all, all we can say. You know, we, no one knows until that first league game. So we're going to, we started pre-season. And I think, I think our natural level, you know, maybe in five, six, seven years' time, could be national one. Um, you know, who knows where the championship will be in six, seven years' time? That could be a semi, semi-pro, even amateur. Who knows? But I think at the moment, as we as a league structure is, I think national one could be our, our natural level. Yeah, that sounds really sensible, doesn't it? Because you've hit your five-year targets already, so no point reassessing them and trying to bite off your, more than you can choose. So yeah, I think that that sounds sounds a great plan. And I think that that point about the championships is going to be so interesting how that ends up. And previously, we probably we, we probably looked at the Premiership in isolation and the Championship in isolation. Will we now look at the Premiership in isolation from the Championship and everything else? Where will the natural cutoff point bef- between professional and amateur be? Are clubs going to be paying players when it's not actually sensible in terms of their business model? So it's quite a lot of things to to work through. But it seems as if having a sort of let's see what happens season, having achieved so much in the past few years, um, seems like it could be a lot of fun. Look, the coaches want to win every game, right? Obviously, right? they're competitive. But look, you know, sure. we, we don't know where we're going to go. You mentioned the championship there. And obviously, the international game and premiership gets loads of attention. But what should the RFU do about the championship? Look, we've seen lots of players in the premiership. Now, the salary cap has decreased. Uh, I've been left without a club. 
Like even today, Joe Simpson, amazing player, has got a short-term contract at sale, right? So mm. he, he was without a contract until today. So some of those players will decide to retire. Some will go to the championship. So, so you know, I've spotted championship for many, many years, and I loved it when London Welsh were in it, and I felt it was a lot stronger, you know, 10, 12 years ago than it is now because there's less funding and there's more time, more part-time clubs in the league. So from your perspective, you know, what could the RFU do with the championship to make it a, a stronger league? Yeah, and on that point about 10 years ago, it was literally 10 years ago that I was covering Bristol for BBC Radio Bristol um, for, for a, a short part of the season. And Bristol finished like eighth in the championship. Um, they didn't get anywhere near the playoffs. A few years later, Steve Lansdowne, they came back in, eventually got up after a few disappointments, you know, some at the hands, of course, of London Welsh. But it was it was telling that, that a club of the size of Bristol were way, way, way off the pace in the championship. What, what should the RFU do? Look, it's such a difficult question because I suppose not dissimilar to society, but it does happen a lot in rugby when people comment on it. They, they have the solution without the process. So the solution would be, yeah, a fully professional championship like they have in France, who have got two professional leagues and they're working on a third. That would be a fantastic solution. But is there the money to do that? We look at the premiership, and there are 13 teams, many of who aren't making any money, um, many of who are, are going through financial hardships, especially post-COVID. So where is the business model? Where is the money in the RFU who themselves are so reliant on a business plan which is revolving around selling out internationals at Twickenham? And if, through the cost of living crisis, post-COVID, Twickenham doesn't start creating the tens of millions of pounds it's always created on match day. That is going to have an effect on RFU finances. It's going to have an effect on payments to premiership clubs, on the championship and on the grassroots. So it's all part of a model where I think we all know what we would like. But the reality of creating it is very, very different. They're looking, aren't they, at, at getting a championship, which is kind of a, a mesh between second teams and ambitious championship clubs. They're keen to say that there is no permanent promotion relegation freeze. It's just a, a couple of year thing. And, and year after next, as far as Premiership Rugby last were concerned, there will be promotion relegation back. Although, as we've seen this year, that is very dependent on teams being able to go up. So I, I know what I would like to see from the championship, but I can't see it happening at the moment, especially in the current climate and post-COVID. One solution which I think needs to be looked at but again won't ever happen because why would a premiership club why would turkeys vote for christmas would be to, to to slim down the premiership slim down the premiership to about 10 teams the three that don't make it go into a championship along with five other ambitious clubs you kind of have a 10 and an eight and that then is cut off from the rest of the game and you do have two vibrant strong professional leagues However, what then happens at the bottom of the championship and top of National One? Should there be always a place for a team who's got ambitions coming up through National One? Of course there should, but at the moment, it's very hard to see anything but the status quo and us muddling through for the next few years because of the financial climate. I don't know what, what you reckon, Gareth, but it just feels like one that we all have ideas of what would look good. It just is the reality of executing it is very different. I just think, you know, that when we had a strong championship, the amount of players who gained their experience you know, playing with like uh, older players who've come down through the leagues and playing the championship, you know, half the England team will have had experience in the championship. You know, even Sam Wainwright from Amp Hill to Saracens mm. hasn't even played the Saracens. He's, been, he's, he's playing against, you know, South African front row. 
you know, and so, so these these players, you know, there, there are players who, who are doing well in the championship and getting ex- valuable experience and have been signed. So I think you know, that to me, I think what you say is of the Prem 1 and a Prem 2, you know, 10 and 8 teams seem to make sense and sell that as a broadcaster, broadcasting rights to try and get more money from BT. That that would make sense. And you show and you show some of that those players who are up and coming uh, in you know Premier Two. And you know, and that that's the way more exposure. You know, I think that'll do that could work, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the point about like the RFU stripping, the RFU got it in their head for right or wrong, about two years ago, they got it in their head that the championship wasn't fit for purpose. Um and whether that's because they didn't think that enough players were coming through for right or wrong, or whether they didn't think it was commercially viable enough for right or wrong, or whether they think the clubs weren't growing at the pace they needed to grow and they didn't have enough financial clout behind them, you know, Elon Trail finders aside, that, that is what the RFU thought. So they said, well, why would we give each club half a million quid a year when that's still just putting a finger in the dam? So whether they're giving them, the RFU's attitude was, was kind of, whether we're giving them £500,000 a year or £150,000, it's still way, 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 way less than you need to operate at a professional level and to provide club uh, provide players for the national side or to be a premiership side. So they've kind of... what they uh, I'm low to say they wash their hands of the championship, but you can't help thinking that it's quite far down the list of priorities for the, 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 the power break brokers of the game at the moment because they just don't see the sponsorship, the commercial, the television or anything that makes the, the championship viable as a professional league. What, what I think is interesting is how you've got very different opinions, say, in Premiership rugby about what to do with the championship, because there was a movement from some key Premiership figures, again, a few years ago, to make the A-League the championship. So kind of have it running concurrently to Surf Bath or play in Bristol on a Saturday afternoon, on the Friday night, the A would play A, part of the championship and they moved away at one point from sort of twinning up you know Bedford Northampton and other clubs London Scottish Harlequins whatever it might be now there seems to be a bit of a movement back to that so we're just going around in circles and I know there's been this huge huge sort of um appraisal of the championship and I know Ed Griffiths had his plan I know they're still working through it at the RFU but something has to come out in the next few months to actually say look this is what we want for the championship because you're quite right there are players who don't have places to play they're proud rugby clubs with great supporter bases and, and championship clubs who, who desperately want to continue to, to be as good as they can be. So it's, it's something that desperately needs sorting. I just don't know if there are any easy fixes. Yeah, I agree. Look, Elim have got the money, but not the fan base. You know, they've got, you know, they've got they've won the league, they didn't meet the minimum standard requirements to, to go up. And they and they're the ones who are top of the championship. So it's a and obviously people in the premiership want a 14 team premiership so it's like top 14 for the urc and france to mirror, mirror all that uh, again we haven't got the answers here we've speculated what could be done and, and it, it does always involve money unfortunately but look we, we could we could talk all day about this championship mm. and i don't i don't, don't want to keep it too long look um, just to understand like from your playing background you played for kcs how come you played for kcs and and uh, are you born and bred in london chris by the way is that yeah i'm born and born and bred in london and, and i went to king's school in wimbledon which is the affiliate school to kcs old boys but then kcs old boys is actually not it's it got affiliation to the school but it's an open club you, you yeah. don't have to have been to the school to play there um but what was great when i was playing is i played a whole season or two with my brother at, i was at nine my brother was at 10 my best mate was at 12 my other best mate was at 15 and we actually at one point put out a back line of kind of 
all guys who had been to the school. And I think when my brother started playing at the club, there were very, very far fewer old boys. And I think we have managed to really recreate that um, pathway from playing for the old boys to play, uh, playing for the school to playing for the old boys. And Paddy Rolston, who you might know, Gareth is, you know, who is the director of rugby at all the sort of uh, the uh, head honcho at KCS Old Boys. He's just done so much over the years to constantly keep the club going and to constantly make sure that players who might be thinking, oh, I'll go and play there or go and play there, come and play for the club. And and so the fact that we're in level six is just unbelievable from everyone involved because we, yeah, we've never paid players. We've never had any intention of play, of paying players. We've relied so much on the goodwill of people. We've relied so much on people coming back in uni holidays and, you know, rushing from work in the city to get to training at 730 um, and I, when I was playing, we were jumping between level eight and level seven. And I kind of thought, oh, I think we might struggle to hang on to level seven. So the fact that we're in level six and holding our own level six is just is just brilliant. And, you know, if you talk about the, the place you want to be as a club and where you can consolidate. I think level six for KCS is really the, the perfect place. You go any higher, you know, the standard will be that little bit too high. There'll be teams that are paying players and we just probably don't have enough people who can commit to the club full time with other commitments, jobs, etc. So yeah, where we are, I think is a great place. And so many people at the club deserve a load of credit for that. So you went to school there and then played for the old boys. And in between you went to university. Did you play rugby yeah, at university I, as well? Then? I went to yeah, I went to uni at Nottingham and I played rugby there. And then actually I came back and had a couple of years on the refereeing circuit, which was really, really eye-opening. Um I'd been refereeing a, a bit at Nottingham. So I played and, and also I did a referee's qualification. So I refereed a lot of matches in midweek and would play on the weekends or, or whatever and then I came back and I did at least a season or two going all around southwest London um, I did 15 games against four teams I did first against first uh, and it was just a, a brilliant experience it was really tough at times you would sometimes if you didn't think you were the best game or one team was really annoyed with you it was so lonely kind of going you, you, you know don't often have um, a sporting occasion where you go by yourself you leave by yourself you don't really talk to anyone you're kind of the the black sheep and then when it did go well you'd drink at the bar afterwards and got to know people it was it was fantastic so yeah I think that 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 time refing was really uh, I, I looking back I was really fond of it even though I had its ups and downs and then I don't know how I got back into playing I just think I suddenly thought oh well, you know be a bit early to stop playing at kind of 22 23 kind of time so went back and had a few really good seasons with uh, with the club Look, I, I'm going to declare now, I'm also a London Society referee, right? So I got, um, I'm 50. I got promoted to level seven last year, which means I can That's referee, good. Nice referee, referee London one next year. So I could referee KCS next, next year oh, and, uh, yeah, okay. and, and anything below that. So, and I've just, in, I've just enjoyed it. Right. So, um, but it's, you know, you're, you're never too old to start again, Chris. And, and actually some of the good things. You know, Do you know what? I, I would like to, I would like to, yeah, I would like to, I'd like to get back into it. It just, yeah, with work and everything, it's not so easy. But yeah, I was going to actually referee a game before Christmas um, that got cancelled because of COVID. But uh, yeah, I, I think the things have changed a fair bit in the last 12 years, haven't they? In terms of, well, the laws have been tweaked here and there, but a bit longer than 12 years. But no, I'd, I'd love to have another go for sure. Well, they're always looking for them. There's games Friday night, there's games Wednesday, yeah, Saturday, sure. Sunday. Yeah. And I appreciate you know, you're a family man, but I'm busy with work. But I think you just put your availability in. They always need referees. And obviously, you know, um, being a referee like you are, you always see the game from referee's perspective. So what engagements do you have with referees now as part of your job? Because you've obviously got to understand the laws 
because uh, you know the referees are such a big part of the game nowadays, aren't they? Especially at the top level. Huge. I don't think there's a sport like it. I really don't. I know referees in football have been a constant kind of narrative and everyone talks about the ref in football, but they kind of make a few big decisions every game. And with VAR now, it's all about everyone hates VAR rather than hates refs. Uh, cricket umpires, I think, you know, what's happened with the, with DRS. You don't have a series influenced by the umpires. Like that's a 1998, I think that England-South Africa series, which was yeah, the umpiring was, umpiring was really bad. And I think South Africans still talk about it. You don't get that. In rugby, of course, you've got the TMO, which avoids howlers on tries. But you can't TMO every single ruck and every single breakdown and every single tackle and every single offside line, every single pass. There's no other sport like it. And I don't think you can ever underestimate the impact a referee has on the game. Um a good game needs a good ref. And if a game struggles to flow, that can be the player's fault, could be the coach's fault, but the ref could also be part of that as well. So, yeah, I, ju- I just think it's it's massive in rugby, the, the refereeing, um, not just the flashpoints, which we talk about a lot with the high tackles, the red yellows, but the way you flow and manage a game just changes everything. I think we're very lucky in, in England and the Premiership to have you know, four or five top quality referees, you know, um, I know they probably all can't go to the World Cup, you can't pick four or five referees from one country, but certainly from the world standing, you know, England are right up there when it comes to having the best refs. Yeah, for sure. And that's just a product of their environment. You know, they're all under the same banner. They're all employed by the RFU. They all train at Twickenham. They all meet every Monday. They don't have that in the URC. And the standard referee in the URC is way lower than the Premiership way way lower and it's way more i'm loath to sort of blame inconsistency because every game is different and every you know a quicker pitch a different style one game you might want to penalize teams for this more than that so the key is keeping it consistent within a game i think you're never going to get perfect consistency game to game but i think the general standard of of urc refereeing is way lower than the prem and that's because they then they've even had a referees manager until quite recently. They've ne- they don't often get to meet. There are those logistical challenges, obviously. So I'm less, I'm less, I'm reluctant to blame the refs themselves, but more the environment around them. Whereas, as you say, the Prem, I think they all know how they want to officiate a game. Of course, they don't get everything right, but who does? I think on the whole, you you know when Wayne Barnes in the middle, Luke Pierce in the middle, when JP Dore was in the middle. I think you you, you you're pretty confident that a game is not going to be completely about the officials. They'll have their moments, of course they will, but their ability to to manage the game, communicate with the players, let the game flow, get the right balance between attack and defence. I think they're really good. And I, I think World Rugby are conscious of that. They're conscious that, you know, if it's an England and France final, for example, or England, New Zealand, or France, New Zealand, you're taking out some of the best refs, aren't you? And so this is why you're seeing more refs get more experience because they're going to need come the World Cup, potentially three or four refs coming through, especially when you look at the ones that are retired in the last few years. And you can see that in some of the matches in the summer series, they were choosing some referees maybe you know, ahead of their time to give them that big match experience because there was nothing really riding on these summer tours apart from obviously the Portuguese want to win. There's no trophy at the end of it, re- you know, real trophy, I should say. So you could see you know, um, some referees were given that experience and, you know, it's it, you know how do you learn without having to without having to referee those matches? It's very tough. Yeah, and and you've got to. I think you've also got to um, appreciate, haven't you, the importance of having that referee team working together. 
Um, and I know that I've spoken to top refs about this. They, they really like it when they know the TMO and the TMO knows them and they know what they want from the TMO and they know the TMO knows when they, they should get involved. Same with the ARs. I think sometimes you get in a Wales, New Zealand, I think it was in the autumn, you had a ref, I think, from one league, an AR from another league, and a TMO from another league. So you had like a top four, your top 14 URC Prem, speaking different languages, refereeing the game slightly differently, and then suddenly dropped. And I know that the COVID has made it difficult for everyone to travel, but they were then suddenly dropped into the same match officials team together, and it didn't work. They had no chemistry. They were all in different places. One felt this was a red, one felt this was nothing. And you've got to, if possible, try and find get a four that know each other, know you know, have some and have some chemistry and understand how each other wants to ref the game. And they all did that, I think, in the summer series. The all the referees refereed like one match and there were AR in for the other two matches when they think. Certainly for Ireland, New Zealand and Wales, South Africa, you saw them yeah, working that's key. as a team. Yeah. So that which is good. Look, um obviously you're a journalist. What was your route to, to BBC Sport then? You went to, you said you went to university in Nottingham. Um, and it can be you know, an easy gig to get the, your, your gig. So what was your sort of pathway to get into to being the lead rugby correspondent to the BBC? Well, I did a history degree at Nottingham, which like doesn't really prepare, prepare you for much, you know. Um, not that anyone out, anyone out there who's thinking of studying history, I, it's great and all, but it, it, you don't finish with history and then you suddenly walk into a job. Um, I actually got a job at the BBC really randomly. It was just as a as a secretary, as sort of an office assistant. And I was on, I was on uh, cover. I was covering someone who was covering maternity. I was there for three, I was meant to be there for three months and I've been there uh, 15 and a half years, which often happens at the BBC. Yeah. Once you get through the door, you then get an opportunity to apply for jobs, which are internal candidates only. So uh, yeah, it, when I wait, I genuinely thought I was going to do three months i was actually looking into setting up with a friend we were going to try and get into like the tra- a travel set up a travel company doing sports tours for schools and clubs that was an idea we had and i was planning to do three months to be seen and try and get into that and then i just stayed at the bbc got my contract extended went from being a, you know doing a lot of phone answering and tea making and photocopy uh and pr- printer photocopier and printer fixing i then got a job on the news floor the sports news floor which was amazing to go from a very quiet office to suddenly the phones ringing off the hook and football managers getting sacked and <laughs> live radio. And it was all just for, a, however old I was, probably about 22, sports mad. Uh, it was just incredibly exciting working with some people who've got on to do amazing things in the industry. Um, but I was very much behind the scenes for about eight years, really. Uh, got a lot of rejections going for, for jobs, um, long process you know you, you get people getting in touch saying how did you get this and n- nothing happens overnight in any job does it you don't just walk into your dream I think people go into journalism at the age of 22 and think they they're going to be the chief football writer for the times within a year you, you might get that role but it will take 15 years so if you're patient and you take as much experience in I went down to Bristol to sort of get some more broadcasting experience when I realized I wanted to sort of move from production to do more on-air stuff um, had a few lucky breaks along the way with people leaving to open up an opportunity here and there. Um, so it's just been a question of patience, bit of luck. Um, and, and that's it, really. It's quite a hard one. It's not like a lot of professions where you go, well, here's your application, stick it in, get, you know, there's your interview. It's a lot more, it's a lot more random and there's no right or wrong way to get into the industry. You just have to, I suppose, once you get a little foot in the door, try and kick the door down. This is one thing being, 
a rugby union correspondent. It's another thing being the lead commentator as well. But that, they're very different things, aren't they? To, you know, um, one, you get a bit more time to ask your questions. Two, you're responding to a live event. Do you have any sort of, did you have any mentors who helped you? And I imagine the training at the BBC is, well, you know, notoriously, you know, great. Well, it's just, it was, when you're, you're when I was a broadcaster, assistant working behind the scenes so working behind the other side of the glass and say you're working on a Saturday afternoon show just being able to listen to all our commentators and reporters out in the field and just take in all of their their knowledge and their their style and there's a guy at the BBC called Rob Nothman who you may hear on some of our our output as well he's a great reporter but he's also an amazing media trainer and, and he is just give so much great advice but I think the key is not to try and imitate someone because you'll just be a poor imitation of them won't you and I think this is this you could extrapolate to parts of rugby you know a coach shouldn't be going oh, I'm going to coach like them because you'll then just be that a, 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 a poor a poor version of it um, but I have just was so lucky of people like um, Ian Robertson who I've worked with for years and, and then I took over from him when he retired in 2018 you know what a voice what a you know, what a figure in the sport. Alistair Eakin, who moved to BT in 2013 and gave me a chance to get in, was just unbelievably helpful as well and supportive. Um, and just so many people at the... At, if you think of anyone who's doing great things in um, in sports broadcasting, all the, the best people are all BBC radio products. You know, Miles Harrison, who's just, for me, the, the voice of rugby in my childhood. You know, I was... Before that would have been Nigel Starmer Smith and Bill McLaren, but growing up in the mid, you know, growing up in the eighties, nineties, and the advent of Sky, Miles and and Stuart Barnes's voices would just cross all the big games. Miles was a BBC Radio product, you know. You listen to BT now, and Nick Mullins, Alistair Eakin, they're both BBC Radio. Andrew Cotter, who you might hear across a range of sports on BBC TV and elsewhere, he's come through BBC Radio, so it is an incredible breeding ground. And if you looked at the news floors up and down. BBC radio and BBC local radio in the 80s you would have a load of people who who've got on to do to do great things so I was very very lucky to sort of get all of that experience and and just insight from from people who you know been around longer than me and achieved a lot more and do you get to do other sport then in the BBC as well and if you're if you're um you know employed by them because you rugby's a weekly sport so do you get do you get much time to do other sports then well, I, I did do, I used to do a lot more when I was kind of doing a, a bit of rugby reporting. I, I did some great gigs. I went to the uh, T20 World Cup in Sri Lanka in 2012, which was just so much fun. I spent five weeks there and I got to interview Jack Callis and Virat Kohli and Shane Watson and uh, Ashwin. And I just remember being kind of just having so much fun that was about 10 years ago now uh and then I did a fair bit of cricket uh 2013-14 a bit of county stuff I've done a fair bit of golf I did the open last year at St George's but it, invariably what what fits in, in in the rugby and where there's a space on the team we've got so many good people working across the sports already that they don't really need me doing too much else um and as we chatted upon early Gareth like rugby's pretty full-on with a kind of 11-month season but yeah doing the open last year and kind of gallivanting around the the Kent fairways in the blistering sunshine yeah was, was a really 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 fun gig so yeah I, I love doing a bit of other sport where possible but obviously rugby takes up a lot of the time and you also got your weekly podcast so um look uh it's grown so much in popularity podcasting you know and since the launch of your pod there'd be many others you know it really helps with sort of fa- help grow fan engagement and people's interest in the sports which ones do you listen to 
Well, I listened to probably the one I would listen to after ours, which obviously I'm on, so I'm obviously going to listen to that, um, would be The Ruck from The Times, just because I know a lot of those those journalists very well. And they've got a, yeah, they've got the real journalistic uh, viewpoint on things. Um, you know, there's other really good podcasts out there, you know, the Rugby Pod's super successful, so too. Um, good, the bad, the rugby. But I think I'd probably listen to The Ruck uh, most regularly. And that's just really good stuff everywhere. You know, Scrum 5 podcast been really good on this tour of South Africa. Um, you know, we can't always cover all the home nations as thoroughly as we'd like because our focus is, is kind of on England because if we don't do England, then no one does because there's obviously the BBC Scotland team who are great and the BBC Wales team who cover Wales and Scotland. And the number of podcasts in Ireland as well, their podcast breadth of their coverage in the Irish media is is extraordinary really so there's so many um so many good options and yeah everywhere you I think the good thing is that there's kind of a if you want to hear ex-players tell their stories you've definitely got that option if you want to hear journalists give you more of a kind of um journalistic viewpoint there's that there's an analysis podcast there's opinion podcasts there are straight interviews you know the egg chasers and the J, J, uh, JB spin-off of that his rugby dungeon you get some great long form interviews there's loads of stuff out there I think for people to enjoy no, that's good I really liked it when you had uh, Gareth Reese Owen and is it Tom English uh, yeah yeah during the six stations when you so that that was that I think uh, added a bit of depth I think um, and into your sort of weekly podcast but it's well, funny because because people everyone's the great thing is everyone's different you know we we try and appeal to what we think the audience might want but some people go oh, we want we want more from you know reporters we want less from ex-players and other people would go well hold on how can these people who've not played the game professionally talk about the sport so everyone does come from a slightly different a slightly different perspective um and yeah it just depends on your personality some people would be like oh i just want to hear from the ex-players and some people say actually i want to hear from those who are kind of informed and up to date and speaking to people within the game and doing interviews and representing the fans views so i think what we try and do with our pod we got um danny and chris ashton are still playing danny now back in the england setup uh ugo who when we started had just retired but now he's quite a long time retired and he really does straddle both the kind of non-playing and the player because he's sometimes he thinks like a journalist and he's super informed and he knows everyone in the game and he's got you know he's well burst on all the politics and all the kind of stuff that normally would be the domain of journalists but he's also played as well and then I'm obviously the kind of journalist non-ex player voice so I think it's about trying to get a contrast and not make it all one set of opinions or all one type of opinions. Do you find it challenging having to commentate on Danny then now you're, you're obviously your colleague stroke friend through the you know, five live podcast do you find that challenging commentating especially what happened in the third test not a yeah not nice to see that really hundred percent. I didn't, I, it, yeah, not, not easy because the, the, the harsh reality is that, that that's probably it for Danny at England level. And I suppose having, knowing him personally as I do just makes you th- perhaps wonder the times in the past, you've just spoken about a player and their career quite flippantly. Oh, that's him done. Or he'll never come back or he shouldn't play for England or, you know, he's not good enough you just makes you think, well, actually, if I knew them personally, or would I say that's their face? You have to represent what the fans are thinking. But knowing Danny as I do, it's made you think, well, actually, you don't want to be going, well, off goes care. He's never going to play for England again. Good riddance. Because you, 
you, you shouldn't be saying that to anyone. I'd never say that. Danny's a, he's a really good friend. So it, it, it definitely has made me think, yeah, how would I, if everyone I knew as well as I do Danny, would I, how in the past have I maybe spoken about that player? So it's just trying to get that balance of staying respectful, appreciating that they could be going through a tough time while also saying, look, the England rugby team only exists because of the fans. It's not really about the players. The sport is about the fans. So as long as you remember that, but then also try and be as respectful as, as possible and get that balance right. Uh, I understand that. Look, you've also had your run-ins with Eddie over the years, uh, but seems to be in a better place with him now. Is is he one of the most challenging head coaches to interview? And what do you think of his uh, little post-match reaction to that Aussie fan as well? <laughs> he's the, he, is the, he is the hardest person because he's um, unpredictable and he's volatile and you genuinely don't know your, his mood sometimes till you sit down with him he and but, but over the years I've kind of worked out that when he doesn't want to talk about something he won't and when he does he will so it's just about asking the questions you need to ask but then knowing there's no point bashing against the locked door because he has a few little uh verbal kind of he has a few phrases he uses when he doesn't talk about something like I don't have to worry about that that's not my concern we're not focused on that. Things that if he wanted to talk about it, so if you said, how do you think the referee is going to referee the breakdown? If he doesn't want to, if he's got nothing to say and doesn't want to get involved talking about the ref, he'll go, that's not our concern. We'll focus on ourselves. If he does, he'll go, really important. There's quick ball. He did the game last year, slow game, hope for a quicker game. So everything is done with a little bit of thought behind it from Eddie Jones. And it's really about just picking your battles with him. I used to, when I started to interview him, every time he'd take a pop of the media, I'd go, oh, you can't say that. But now you just just let it go because there's no point getting into a a, a, a tit for tat sometimes. You just yeah. go, okay, Eddie, fine, move on. So it's, And also being aware that there will be, between now and the World Cup, blow-ups. There often are. And just making sure that... <laughs> you know, those blow-ups happen as infrequently as possible. Or not, when I say blow-ups, I mean, he'll have a fallout with the media. He has them every, say, 18 months. It's just making sure that you don't add to add to that needlessly as well. So again, it's about finding that balance. You've got to ask him. You've got to challenge him. He doesn't particularly like to be challenged. Very few head coaches do. He also does know the game. He knows what you've got to ask. It's about trying to just make sure you're asking them in the right way and ultimately getting the right answers rather than you know we've seen this thing in broadcast journalism haven't we around with politicians where the the broadcaster makes it so much about the question they're asking as opposed to what the answer might be and sometimes there's no point asking the same question four times if someone's not going to answer it but it's difficult it's difficult it's yeah it's it's definitely something that i've i've learned through the sort of six seven years i've been interviewing him and that's fair enough. And let's say we just had the summer tour. So just you know, very briefly, where do you think uh, each home nation um, is in terms of their build-up to the World Cup, you know, um, after their performance in the summer tours? Well, Ireland are looking in a great spot and they're the best of the home nations by some distance. We know what they're about game plan-wise. We know what they're about personnel-wise. They're looking really well coached. They're looking great. They're looking in, in, in really good nick. Still some questions about what happens if X gets injured or Y gets injured or they get bossed at the scrum or dominated physically. And so I don't think they are unbeatable, but they had a great series win and they looked great in the Six Nations at times. I think England are kind of in a similar boat maybe to Wales. They 
showed a lot of spirit, a um, lot of character, some names really emerged, some big names came back, you know, I believe in Apola, you know, George North, some new guys came through, which is fantastic to see, Jack Van Porfley and Tommy Rafael, loads to, more to talk about, but you still aren't exactly sure what is their preferred way of playing, and more so for England, what would be their starting 15 when everyone's fit? Will they go back to a few more tried and trusted players when Joe Launchbury's fit, when Anthony Watson's fit, when Johnny May's fit, when Tulangi's fit, when Slade's fit, when Ben Young's is available? How early Jones meshes this tour with what's happened in the past five, six years and that experienced core? That's going to be so interesting come the autumn. And I think Scotland, I think it's a shame they got pipped at the end. I think it would have been a big series win for them. They're building their depth. But again, what kind of Scotland team they are and really mentally, how do they make sure they shut games out? They really need to win is something to work on going forward. But look, all of them are are really competitive. And I think that World Cup is shaping up to be uh, super exciting, isn't it? Yeah, very open. But you know, obviously, you've got the top four teams in the world on one side of the draw with France, New Zealand, Ireland, South Africa. And then you've got you know England, Wales, Australia and one of Argentina or Japan, potentially. You know, I don't want to call... You know, Wales are always a banana skin waiting to happen. Obviously, the last time the World Cup was in France, we did an exit of the group. So you, being a Welshman, you're always a bit cautious making predictions. But winning winning that pool, and Australia are definitely beatable, unless Australia have a kind of re- massive resurgence like they had under Michael Checker between 2014 and 2015. Australia are super beatable, in which case that could be a quarterfinal against Argentina. Again, yeah, really beatable. So all Wales could could face England in the quarters. Or lose to Fiji again. Fiji get three performances. Lose to Fiji under Vern Cotter with time in camp. Yeah. Oh, it's a horrible. That's a horrible third team in the pool, isn't it? What? what, what I mean, England but, have got Japan, which isn't great, but, but that's what you want in sport. You don't. I don't think you know. You want. We all want a stronger game, more competition. And you don't want to be able to predict the eight teams that go into the quarterfinals. That, that, yeah. that, that, that's you know, so. If the game grows, you should have more. Uh, you should be more predictable who will get into the, the, those quarterfinal berths, and that makes for a better game overall. Personally, but yeah, who knows? And, that's, and that, uh, yeah, and I think the only pool we can call with confidence the two teams coming out of it would be the New Zealand France pool. Yeah, because the other pool you've got Scotland, Ireland, and South Africa, two from three. And the other pool, you've got, uh, as you said, uh, uh, Fiji, Australia, Wales, Georgia too. And then and then Japan, Argentina and England. Japan are going to, you know, Japan are going to cause some, some ripples. And Argentina, I think if they get going, if they get on a streak, they can be really, really dangerous. But I think England should win that pool. And then, yeah, big showdown, Wales or, or Australia, um, which would be, yeah, be really exciting. Uh, but that, you know, that's going to be next season, a long season. They get a bit of a break and then they line up for friendlies and a World Cup. So hopefully you get a bit more time off at June, July time because there's no summer tours. But Chris, really appreciate your time. Uh, I love what you do at the BBC. Uh, you know where we are if you want to visit. When we, if, if we ever get to National One, you'll come and see a National One team. Come and see us. Awesome. Thank you for your time today. Uh, really appreciate it. No, anytime. Thanks for having me on. And yeah, look forward to coming down again soon. Thanks, Gareth. Cheers.